is, if you, were, if, if you just remember, if you were with us, at the beginning of Acts 15, I said, if I was going to present this, this uh, topic, I would lay it out in the exact opposite order that we actually run into these elements as they come up in the text. So we kind of got surprised by week one where the uh, church in Antioch had been troubled by some Pharisees who had come down, some teachers who had said, you have to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses, otherwise you're not saved. And that troubled them. So they send off Paul and Barnabas after a big argument to go up to Jerusalem to settle the matter. And so there's a gathering then of the apostles and the elders and the church and Paul and Barnabas and anybody else important uh, was there. And they're hashing this out. And so we run into the problem of what role does the law take in the life of the believer? And so we talked about maybe the externalization of that, the false flags of the flesh was week one. And then last week, we just talked about grace, grace, grace. And I said, at the end of that message, you're going to have an objection. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a phenomenal preacher, theologian, and a doctor nonetheless, said, if people don't accuse you of uh, lawlessness when you preach the gospel, then you've not preached it clearly. Because the implication of grace, grace, grace rises an objection in most of us about, yeah, 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 but. Yeah, but if it's just grace, and it's all grace, and grace saves us, like, there has to be something to tether us to some rules. There's got to be some kind of way to dictate how people behave or don't behave. And so that's what we're getting to this week, that objection, the yeah, but objection. There has to be a law. There has to be some rules. Jesus definitely tells us to obey. Um, Pretty much the whole New Testament is full of correction for people doing the wrong thing. So if, if there's correction, there has to be some standard, right? And so the question is, again, how do we address that problem? Now, you need to put yourself not where you are now, chronologically, but you need to put yourself in the moment where they're having this debate because you would say, well, there's a lot of correction in the New Testament. And there's Paul teaching people and, and we've got the teachings of Jesus and you've got to remember that none of that is written down for the benefit of the church at this moment. All they have to go off of is the Old Testament, which is sometimes summarized as the law and the prophets. Or if you're just talking about the first five books, maybe it's just the law because those had to do with the teaching of Moses and uh, what was dictated in the covenant that was made under Moses. But that is neither here nor there. So you have to remember that Paul did not have a reference to say, don't you remember in the New Testament where you guys have this point of reference to go back to, to say this, this is what you ought to do and this is what you ought not to do. And so we make the mistake of thinking that the, the gospel is about getting you to adhere to a a different set of rules, a Christian set of rules that wasn't necessarily the same as the Old Testament set of Israel, uh, of rules that Israel had in the law, right? Because there's, uh, it's not unclear that Paul says, look, you are not under law, you're under grace. And you have to make some sense of that statement instead of just nullifying it and say, well, it doesn't really mean that, or, or trying to nuance it to mean something different than what it clearly states. And so that's, that's the question I'm out to answer today. The question is not whether or not there is a law. That's, that's for sure. Paul says there's a law. It's good. It's righteous. It's perfect. The problem is not with the law. The problem's with us, which we, we pointed out last week. So the law is good. And, and so it's not really about whether or not there is a law. It is what place, what form, what position, what is our relationship to that law? That's, that's really what's at stake. When you have that yeah, but objection, if there's a standard and the standard's pretty clear. It's been put out there. God's revealed his, his desires for what he wants out of people, what's good and bad, what's right and wrong. That's, that's, not, that's not in question. What's in question is how do we relate to that? What is the relationship of that? 
Now, if I'm clear this morning that that's what we're talking about, I want to make a, an illustration that will maybe help you this morning. So if you set a course to go somewhere and you're off by one degree in one foot, you're only off by 0.2 inches. But if you travel from here to Colorado Springs, you would, you would be off by uh, 92 feet, okay? Now, if you went all the way around, if you started in Denver and went all the way around the globe and you were off by one degree, you would miss Denver altogether by 400 miles. You'd be somewhere outside of Roswell, New Mexico, right? You, you would miss that entirely just by one degree. If you multiply that idea and you took that same destination off by one degree to the moon, you would miss the moon by 4,169 miles. And if you went to the closest star, you would miss the closest star by 441 billion miles because you were off by one degree. So here's, here's the problem that we have. There is a, a space rocket intensity and energy that when it is saddled with wrong direction, wrong knowledge, puts out energy that's good and productive and right. It is, it's, it's producing something, but it's producing it in the wrong direction. And this good, right energy is a virtue of the new birth. When you are born again, you are born again with the spirit. You have new affections, new desires, and those are pointed somewhere. So the energy is good, the, 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 it's effective, it, it does propel you somewhere, but when they're misguided or corrupted, now listen carefully, when they're misguided or corrupted, even just a little bit, one degree, half a degree, and they're not informed with knowledge and truth that is actually good and right, then all of that good output ends up being in either a wrong, a dangerous, ineffective, or useless direction. And the result of that is that you wind up in your spiritual walk confused, frustrated, chaotic, or burnt out in general. That is the effect of wrong, wrong trajectory with right energy. So good intentions saddled with wrong knowledge, wrong direction um, is, is, uh, is, is a problem because it still burns with the same amount of intensity in our lives. And so uh, false restrictions that end up being saddled onto that idea is rocket intensity with bottle rocket accuracy, right? Bottle rocket, like who knows? It might run into you. It might go through the window. Like we don't know what's going to happen. So the thing is, we recognize when it's saddled with right knowledge that we end up at the place that we're trying to be because all things line up. But when it's not, there's some results out of that that happen. One is that we try harder and harder and we give more and more effort. And the more effort that you give, the further away from the target you actually wind up being because you're off by one degree. So you try harder and you put out more effort and you see that the more effort you put out, it's actually creating the margin, it's furthering it from the place that you thought that you were going to wind up. Martin Luther, who we credit with being sort of the, 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 the catalyst, if you will, of the Protestant Reformation, suffered from this problem. He lived a tortured life of guilt, constantly wondering, constantly confessing if his sin. He was, he was racked with his conscience telling him that if he didn't constantly confess, if he, if he, uh, that he wouldn't be able to really have forgiveness. And so he, he finally resolved at one moment when he was reading 
to rest in what we call sola gratia, which is by, by grace alone. And then he came up with faith alone. And so that was the impetus for the Protestant Reformation and his view on all of theology. But the problem was he didn't have a right view and all of his good right energy and confession was, was saddled and it, and it brought him down and he was burnt out before he discovered this. On the other hand, there's another error that could happen. It's, it's, there's wrong trajectory and good energy that increases a margin from where you're trying to be, but there's also just sitting in the rocket, throwing out the navigation calculations and just you know sticking a finger in the wind and following your heart, right? We're just gonna three, two, one launch and whatever I feel like going towards today is the right target. So you start out going to the moon, but then tomorrow you think Jupiter might be a better place and then you start missing Chick-fil-A sauce. And so you decide to turn around, right? And so you, you spend energy going different directions, but then you actually never progress towards any one particular thing. And so that too is wasted effort. There's never actual progress towards any goal. And so these two outcomes are very uh, common. They're common in the results of Christian lives. And they're the unfortunate result of being saddled with wrong ideas. And so the two ideas that we're talking about today in technical terms are legalism and antinomianism. I'll explain both of those in just a second. Legalism, antinomianism, which is just lawlessness. Anti means against, and nomos is the Greek word for law. So against law. So legalism is the problem when it invades and perverts the truth of how, why, and if we are even justified. I'm going to say that again real careful. Legalism is what happens when the truth of our justification is perverted. So we're not sure if we're justified, we're not sure how we're justified, and we're not sure um, why we're justified. And so that becomes a filter then that we apply to ourselves. We look at ourselves, and this filter says, well, you're justified or you're not justified based on what? A set of rules. Well, these rules say, because I've done this and not that, that I'm okay. And so this is what Luther's struggle was. He was legalistic at heart. So legalism, we, we throw it around sort of pejoratively in spiritual circles, either to avoid accountability, right? So that we, well, you're just being legalistic. You're just trying to like apply your false standard to me. But you have to be careful that we're not talking about the, the non, that we're not talking about the colloquial or the common usage of it. We're talking about the technical term of it. So legalism is technically not just someone who follows rules or is strict about rules or or knows what the rules are. That's not legalism. Legalism is seeing the rules as the means. It is the way. It is the only way that I am accepted, that I gain favor, that I merit whatever it is that you're after. That's a legalist. So that's one error. The opposite of that is antinomianism. Antinomianism is the corrupted view of grace. So if one is the first one is the, the, the corrupted view of justification. The other is the corrupted view of grace. It looks at grace and says, I don't have to pursue anything because of grace. Because of grace, I can actually defy and uh, be against the law. Against the law. And so you live a life that is contrary to any obligation or standard. It sees no purpose in fruit or obedience. Now, these are interesting in that only one of them is condemned as a heresy. Now, a heresy is not just something that's not accurate. A heresy is something, is the difference between being saved and not saved. If you believe something incorrect, you could still get to salvation in most cases. But when it's deemed as heretical, that means it's the difference between believing that and not being saved. 
and believing it and it's still just being an heir, okay? Which one of those do you think is deemed as heretical? <laughs> not the one you would think. Antinomianism is not deemed as a heretical view. Now, why is that? Well, I, I, I first want to push something out of your mind. Remember, we're talking about the technical definitions, not the, the common phrases. So it would be easy to confuse antinomianism with what I'll call anomianism. So A just means without, as though there is no law. Not, you got to remember antinomianism is against the law. It is to sin, to believe that the, the standard is, is because of grace, there's actually no accountability. That's, that's, that's to practice uh, sin. Now, that's a problem, but anomianism is what we think of when, when we're sort of thinking about this in general, which is to think, well, I, I don't know what the law is, or that there isn't really a, a, set, a set of standards, which is what I sort of pointed out at the beginning, where Paul doesn't have a New Testament to give to these Christians or these new believers to say, hey, here's what you ought to do, and here's what you ought not to do. And so there is an, the, the question is this, is there an obligation to do something because of grace? And my assertion this morning is yes, but we, we can't fall into either one of these two errors, whether or not they're condemned as heresy or not. And so initially, these two things, they appear to be opposites, but they share the same root source, which is a problem with understanding the law. The problem with understanding the law. Where does the law go? Failure to rightly understand the law, mistaking its purpose and place in your life, your relationship to it, is going to determine whether or not you've got this sorted out correctly. Now, we are fond of, if you've been around uh, the church very long, of saying, yeah, the thing is, there's stuff in the Old Testament that we don't follow just because that was for Israel, right? And like, we don't have a priesthood and we don't have the sacrifices. And so basically everything that I think is boring and I skip over in my Bible reading plan, that doesn't apply to me. But there is a thing called the Ten Commandments and those apply. And I say, okay, if that's the, if that's the standard and the law that we should apply, I would ask you, how are you doing with that? Now, we did an exercise a few weeks ago, and I asked if you could even name all the Ten Commandments, and I think we got close, but I'm asking you this morning, how are you doing with keeping the Sabbath, remembering that and keeping it holy, right? How about just like, well, okay, we'll throw that one out because that was Old, Old Testament, maybe more emphatic. So we got nine commandments at least, right? And then I'm like, well, what does it mean to honor your father and mother? And then you're like, well, I don't know. And uh, so maybe we're not doing so great with that one. So then we just go down the list and say, how are you doing on these things? And so really the Ten Commandments isn't your standard of life either. And the temptation here is to just say, well, there's got to be a middle ground. Then, if, if one extreme is law and the other extreme is grace, we just sort of split the difference, a little law and a little grace. So here's the problem with that. This has led to the, a whole host of um, errors, of of heirs that have been condemned historically in the church as heretical positions, spiritualized obedience, neonomianism, Gnosticism, Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism. Uh, the answer is not staking out a middle ground. If you don't know what any of those mean, it doesn't matter. It's not half law and half grace because that will always devolve into an abuse of either law or grace. It's practice, grace, and that's the, that's the answer. So the question that where I'm trying to, or the answer this morning is part of the question. Because I asserted that last week, if not by grace, or if by, if by grace, not by law. And so that objection this morning, I think we can get to it. And so here is what I want to prepare the ground of your heart with. 
The problem of looking at this balance is that you probably don't think carefully about it normally, but you do experience things in your life. And you might say, you know, there's times where I feel frustrated. I'm like putting out effort and I don't really know what the standard is. I'm not sure why I'm adhering to a certain standard because it seems like some guy over there is acting a fool and seems fine with it. And they're like, am I wrong? And he's right or is he right and I'm wrong? And so we're not sure about those kinds of things. We do this comparison thing or it becomes confusing and discouraging in our walk. And I'm telling you this morning, if you can rightly place what the law is and how you relate to it, those things will be put away. So let's pray this morning. Ask for the Lord to help us to understand his word and we'll see what he would have for us. Father, pray for our time. We carry... um, a lot of notions about this topic, this idea this morning. And so I just ask that you would cut through all of the fog of um, what the world says, what baggage we bring in this morning, what thoughts we bring in from the outside, the thoughts of man, and that you would just clearly speak to us um, the truth of who you are and what you want for us, not from us this morning. So... We thank you for the fact that you've given yourself to us in your word, that you will reveal truth to us uh, by your spirit. And so we ask that you would do that this morning in our time and in our gathering. I pray that this would glorify you and all that's done and said. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So law, the problem is, 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 are you lawless? And I would say, no, the law has not gone anywhere. Maybe you're just using it wrong. Um, I asked, you know, earlier if you guys have the experience of like you're doing something, you're using something, and then somebody uses it the right way or a different way, and you go, how did I never know that? And there's a guy on uh, social media, and he's got a ton of these videos, and he says, man, for 40 years, I recognized that I've been doing something wrong. So if you missed it, right here, there's a plate of little grape tomatoes. Now, if you're going to cut some grape to your tips every time, what... You could do, though, is just sandwich that between two plates and slice right down the middle of those grape tomatoes and cut them all at once and never risk your fingers. That's pretty awesome. So uh, I've got a few more here. Maybe you're not impressed by that. Maybe you're not sure how to get the last piece of cake into the Tupperware without getting your fingers all into it. Well, if you turn it upside down and put it on the lid and then put the Tupperware over the lid, you can preserve your cake. That's also pretty awesome. I don't know if I'm enlightening anybody's life right now, but you might want to scribble these down. So uh, that one, how about you're not, you're not able to get a jar open. You know, it's vacuum sealed pretty good. Apparently, if you interlock your fingers and squeeze the lid just so, it will uh, open that pressurized lock. And uh, you, you can't hear the audio here, but he's, he's testing out all of these things to show that maybe it's not that you're using it wrong. Maybe you just need to learn a new way to use something or a new way to do something. And the last one, just in case you're a pineapple fan. You don't have to cut all the skin off. I guess you can just bang it on some hard surface and then they come out as individual portions. So I see some looks that tell me you're going to go try this out later, which I love. That's awesome. And, um, oh, I guess I have one more. Um, One more. I don't know what this one was. Oh, if you want just an individual serving on a blender and you have a jar. Most blenders will screw right onto a jar lid and you can make your own individual smoothie. And there you go. You're welcome. Information this morning. That's not biblical, but super informative. So here's the question again. It's not, it's not, is there a law? It's the question of what, what, what place does the law or should the law take 
in our lives. And so maybe you're using it wrong or maybe you need to learn a new, a new use for the law. Now, there's three uses that are commonly um, looked at in the law. The first one is really um, simple. It's concrete. It's, it's to restrain evil. God says, don't do that because it's wrong. It's bad. It results in fallout of emotion and, and physical and all of those kinds of things. Do this. Don't do that. It's a restraint of what is evil and wrong. And so when God gives the law, not just in explicit form on the tablets of stone to write the 10 words, he's also written the law in our consciences. It tells us what's right and wrong. We all kind of generally agree that it's not good to torture babies. It's not good to kill people. Like we have that kind of conscience written in our lives. And so what Paul says about this in Romans is that when, when the Gentiles who don't have the law explicitly written down, when they do what is good and right, they reveal that God has put a law in our hearts. So it's to restrain evil. That's one use of the law. The second use of the law is revelation. And here's what this means. It is a revealing of who God is. The law is not an arbitrary set of rules that God has put into the world as though they have no um, bearing on, on something uh, relevant in, in this sense. The, the, the law is a revelation of what God is like or his character, or his being. It, if you want to know why God asked for something specific, let's say, why does God demand that the Israelites, you know, don't wear mixed clothing? Well, he demands that because he says, I'm a holy God. And when I say mixed clothing, I mean like in, in the Levitical code, right? There was, don't, don't wear, you know, garments that have mixed different kind of, kind of fabric. Well, because he's trying to convey to them the idea that he is a holy God and he doesn't want a mixture of something else with their worship of him. So it is a revelation of God's very being. His character is imbued in the law. Now, God is unchanging and that's important. He's never changed and therefore the law is never changing. The revelation of who God is in the law means that the law is permanent and will not be uh, there's no shadow of shifting because there is no shadow of shifting in God. And what it reveals to us about not just who God is, but then who we are in light of that. Well, if God is God and I'm not God, well, that means some things for how I should approach him. If God is unchanging the same yesterday, today, I change all the time. So that must mean that I'm lesser than God. And so it's a revelation about who he is, but also about who we are and then the obligations that come out of that relationship to him. If he's God and I'm not, if he's big and I'm not, and he's holy and I'm not, that has some, some implications to it, if you want to say it that way. So the revelation of God's character as being actually comes to full fruition then when Jesus comes. And John says it like this, the word of God was existent before all things. And through the word of God, everything was made that we see. But then that word became flesh and it was Jesus. And he came and he dwelt among us. So that word of God came in the person of Jesus. And so Jesus can say something like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and that Jesus is the perfect representation of who God is. So that idea that it's a revelation, ooh, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and he's a revelation of God's very being and character is the second one. Now, the third one is just reference, okay? So here's what we do as we look back at the law. We look at the law, and we say, we're, we're not under, you know, we're not under those conditions, but there are write things in those. And we discern the general principles about what God says about himself and about us through those. And it's the, if you want to think about it this way, it is the character of what those laws convey, the, the generalities of it. Like, 
Here's an example. In uh, Exodus 21, which is the book of laws, like the civil code that's given to Israelites. And there was rules about like, hey, if you borrow somebody's ox and, you know, that ox dies while it's in your possession, then you owe your neighbor the ox because it died in your possession. He loaned it to you, assuming you would return it in the same living condition that you got it in, right? And so the problem with that is that if you look at that in the concrete way and say, well, I don't have an ox, so that must, that must mean the law doesn't apply. Well, does this apply? Loving your neighbor as yourself means that if your neighbor loans you something in good faith, that you should return it to him in that same condition. Well, yeah, that sort of makes sense, right? That's, that is the referential portion of the law. So we can boil the law down very simply to this, love God and love your neighbor. That is the simple summation of the law. Jesus says that is the summation of the law. Now, the questions, the individual specific questions that come out of that, well, what does that mean or what does that look like in different cases causes us for that, that third use, which is the referential use of the law. So the law doesn't change. What does change is our relationship to the law. Let me say that again. The law is not, because God does not change and because his character is in, invested, it is imbued into the law and revealed in that, it does not change, but our relationship to the law is changed. The law is immutable. That just means unchanging. But the effects of the law are relative to us. That means it is relationally. As in, if we're in a different kind of relationship to the law, it changes the effects of the law. And here's how that is changed. We are changed. We're changed three ways, positionally, spiritually, and covenantally. We'll get to two of those today and the third one next week. Positionally, spiritually, and covenantally, and there's your format for the rest of our time this morning. I want to walk through how those things change and how they then change the application of the law to us. So that assertion last week that we're not under grace but under law, that's not mine, that's Paul's words. It raises the importance of needing to to, to grasp what does Paul then mean about being under the law? We are no longer under the law. Okay, we hear that and we hear the emphasis on grace and law and Paul's emphasis is on under. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. So it raises the importance of needing to understand this. And the mixture, the idea that there's a middle ground of those things, right, that leads to error. And so um, the simplicity of this tells you that there's no middle ground, meaning it has to be law or it has to be grace. That's why Paul says, if you go back to the law, Christ is of no value to you. You can't mix one or the other. And he begs him. He says, don't go back to the law. Why does he do that? Because there is no mixture in which that will work out. It's one or the other. So it's very simple. So we have holiness movements and ideas about perfectionism and and how we can work towards the law. And Paul never points to the fact that there is a law. In fact, he warns the believers always not to do that, but then he still implores them to do something in light of the fact that they are saved that positionally things have changed in their lives. So 1 John, I read this during uh, the uh, music portion, 4 and starting in verse 17, says this, by this, so he's talking about love and how God has shown love to us. He says, by this, love is perfected. That means it just reaches its, its completion point, its intended end. It's perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Okay, so if in your heart, You say, there's got to be a standard, and I'm not sure if I'm living up to that standard, or I'm wildly chasing all these different standards. I don't know which one is right. 
He's saying there is an encroaching day of judgment coming. So if you want to stand with confidence in that, it comes from doing that out of love. So because uh, as he is also, so are we in the world. Well, he's going to go on to explain that. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Does that just mean the more I love, the less I have to fear things? Well, yes and no with some qualifications because fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. This is coming out of the same line of argument that says we love because he first loved us. And this is love, that God sent his son to take sin, okay? So that is the line of argument and reasoning. He said when we've had that, when we've received that love and it comes to fruition in us, in our hearts, then that casts out fear. Why? Because fear has to do with the fear of judgment and, and um, condemnation. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Positionally, you've changed. So what does that mean? That means when you are justified, when you have been declared not guilty because of the, 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 the rules of the law say, this is what good looks like. This is what righteous looks like. This is what God's standards are. And you go, I'm not any of those things. There's a condemnation that goes with that. Well, the wages of sin are death. So we look at that standard and there's a condemnation that goes with it. In Christ, you're justified and that condemnation is removed. So positionally, you've changed in relationship to the law. Before it condemned you in death, you were under its just condemnation. Death, that's what I pronounce over you. But in Christ and through the Spirit, we have life. And so we can, we can live not, not in fear, but in love because of Christ, because of faith. So here's, here's what this looks like. Motivating people to act Christian out of fear is not fruit, and it's not faith. If I say, if you do this, you might not be saved, that's motivating your, your behavior, but rooting it in fear. And what Paul just said is that, or excuse me, what John just said is that good behavior is not rooted in fear, it's rooted in and being set free from that fear because condemnation has already been taken. So acting Christian is not faith and it's not fruit. What is, is observing Jesus's instruction and following him in obedience. Now, that's not a fun word game and I'll explain that in just a few moments. But because Christ took our punishment, why does he do that? Well, that's what John said. That's what real love looks like. Greater love is not expressed than that Christ came and gave himself up for you. That's love. And when you receive that love, that's what we say is putting our faith in Christ for, the, for receiving that punishment on our behalf. So because that love is poured into us and it finds its end and its intended means, now we can move forward in faith, not in fear. The life of faith is not rooted in fear. So the life that is pleasing to God is not rooted in fear. Because fruit doesn't come from fear. Fruit comes from love because fear um, has to do with judgment and those who are in Christ are no longer under condemnation. That's the line of reasoning. Did you catch the whole thing? Because I don't know if I could say it again. That was off the top of the head. But the life of faith is not rooted in fear. So fear of being judged, fear of not being saved. Am I saved? I don't know. Well, have you trusted in Christ that he received your punishment? 
and he's given that to you and you've accepted that by faith, well, then you don't have to question by your behavior in fear if you are saved or not. Fear of not being enough, not having enough fruit in your life. Fear of condemnation for something that you've done or said subsequent to maybe trusting Christ. Fear of other people's standards for you. They're applying their legalistic thought about whether I'm good enough or not. Fear of fake fruit. Well, if you've not done this thing or if you've not experienced this way, well, then uh, you may not be saved. And so all of those things are rooted in fear, not in love, not in knowing that condemnation has been removed from you. Not all fear is bad, but not all love is good. Okay? Do not love the world or the things in it. That's, that's a command. That's pretty basic. Do not love the world. Well, so not all love is good, but not all fear is bad because we're told to fear God. We're told to fear the one who can righteously and justly condemn our souls to hell. So there's, there's good fear and there's bad love. But in general, fear that is rightly rooted in love is what produces good things. God, when feared in love, is clung to as a refuge for righteousness. If, if, you, if you're, when I say we should fear God, it's not fear God because we're afraid that he's going to kill us. We fear God as a refuge. He's a refuge of righteousness. But God, when feared in the flesh, that is, the things that I know are sinful, when we look to our flesh and we say, am I good enough for, for God's standards? That I, that absolutely not, right? When God, when feared in the flesh, is who we, we run from him instead of to him. Instead of being our refuge, we're, we're, we're terrified when we go run and we hide in the bushes like Adam and Eve, right? We're afraid of God. Instead of running to him, we run away from him. And that's the difference between fear and love or fear in the spirit. So we move forward without fear by looking at perfect love in the gospel. The gospel, obviously, is going to be key to this. So we've changed positionally because of justification in our relationship to the law. And that's Paul's argument all through that Romans section where he's having that fight with himself. Well, the stuff I want to do, I don't do. And then I try to do the good things and they'll never come about. He's arguing with himself. And then he goes on to say, look, if you present your body as a slave of sin, what's going to happen in the flesh is that you're going to sin. But if you walk in the spirit, then you'll present your body as a slave to righteousness and then good things will come. And then he goes on in all of Romans 8 to talk about walking in the spirit and what that means. And spiritually being alive changes uh, another aspect of our relationship to the law. So positionally we change and spiritually we change. Why? Because the law is spiritual. It's spiritual in that it reveals who God is and God is spirit. So it's spiritual in that sense, but then we're also told that it's spiritual and must be spiritually discerned. That people that do not have the spirit can't understand the law. It's foolishness to them. It seems stupid. So the spiritually discerned aspect of it is important. When the church in Antioch receives this letter from the church in Jerusalem, hey, we've come to a, we've come to a resolution. Look, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit to save the Gentiles without the law. And we also came to one accord, and so they send this letter. Remember, and I said there's like four rules in it. But the four rules don't really encompass any generalities. They're actually quite specific. And so that wouldn't suffice to be a new kind of law. They're doing something. And then we also find out something interesting. As they send this letter with representatives back down to the church in Antioch, they receive the contents of the letter, and it says they rejoice. They're happy to receive this. It's, 
you've got to think about this logically for a second. Why would they be happy to get these rules? Well, because it's confirming what Paul had already told them was true, that, that you are saved, that you have been uh, saved by the work of Christ. And so that's, that's good news. And then there's some implications from that salvation that we get to next week that covenantally things are different. So positionally changed, spiritually, you're alive. You have the spirit of God within you and covenantally, it's different than it was before. And these things were all foretold. Moses said, there's gonna be a new covenant. Jeremiah said, new covenant. Ezekiel said, new covenant. And the same thing was predicted about that covenant. That God would give his people not a law from the outside, but a law on the inside. I will write my law on their heart. It won't be tablets of stone. It will be in hearts of flesh. And I will fill them with my spirit so that they will walk in my ways. That's what was promised in the new covenant. And so the transition of covenant is of paramount importance. And then think about the words of what that prophetic looking forward was. Well, the covenant right now is on tablets of stone. And yeah, there's, there's rules in, but there's coming another covenant where the rules won't have to be written outside. They'll be inside of us, and I will fill them with their spirit, not so that they will, listen, obey all the rules, but so that they will walk in my ways. They will walk in my ways. That's what God wants for us, not to check the rule book all the time, but to walk in faith following him. The spirit helps us do this. Our obedience, if you want to think about it that way, is motivated in grace. It's motivated in love, but primarily it's motivated by the Spirit. It is the Spirit who both uh, works in you to to will and work for for God. He's giving you the desire, the affection, and the the umption, the, the energy to do those things. That's what's true. So that rocket fuel desire pointed in the right way in faith goes the right direction, but you don't saddle it with um, all these other rules, otherwise you wind up in one of those two problems, right? With uh, no destination at all or just off. The, the law is never pointed to anywhere in the New Testament, again, as the way to move forward. Even, in fact, this. When Jesus gives the Great Commission, I was like, this is going to be a problem until I, I read it again. So Jesus is the Great Commission, right? Go disciple the nations. Discipling the nations, teach them to what? Well, baptize is in there. That's good. I like that you put that first. True Baptist. Okay. So he said, he did say, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to what? Obey. Obey. I thought, that's pretty legalistic. That's not the word there. It says, teaching them to observe, to abide. That's literally what it means. Teaching them to abide in my ways. That's exactly what God said the new covenant would be. I will put my law in their heart. I will fill them with my spirit that they will walk in my ways, which is what Christ commanded the disciples to do, discipling the nation, teaching them to observe who I am. Well, how can we do that? Well, there's a referential point in the law, but we have Christ himself. We have Jesus. Paul doesn't point to the law. He points to Christ. Philippians 3.17. Brothers, join in following all of the laws, even the ones that aren't written yet, to their nth degree. Oh, is that not what it says? That's not what it says. Brothers, join in imitating me, keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul says, I'm imitating Christ. And Christ is the embodiment of the law. He's the embodiment of righteousness. 
So if you can follow Christ, if you can keep your eyes on Christ, guess what you're doing? You're keeping your eyes on the law. And you're doing that in faith without fear of condemnation because you're out from under that. Because in Christ, he is your refuge because he has fulfilled the law. Now, if you don't do that, if you want to keep your eyes on something else, you're you're not going to walk in faith. You're going to walk in fear. And you become an enemy of the cross of Christ because you're looking to some other standard. And that is the greatest temptation in our hearts to find some other standard to look to to tell us we're okay. And that's the problem. It's so subjective. Your standard's different than my standard. And, you know, 20 years ago, it was a totally different standard. And culture dictates different standards. And so the problem is going to be that there's one standard, and it's Christ. And even that standard in itself doesn't, I mean, like, I'm not Jesus. And I don't know about you guys, but you, you don't have to be Jesus, but you have Jesus in you. And you have Jesus over you. And you have Jesus before you. And keeping your eyes on Christ, and for those that also walk according to Christ, will encourage you forward. Grace affirms the truth of what the law exposes. Grace says there is a law, and you need grace because of the law. And if we walk in the law, we're always walking in condemnation. But if in the Spirit we walk in grace, well, now we're walking in faith. That's what Paul is after when he says walk by the Spirit. He doesn't mean the Spirit as in like, Woo, you know, I'm just going to close my eyes and see where I'm going to go today. That's not what that, that means. We're imitating Christ with the help of the Spirit, by the Spirit. Looking to Christ, who is what? The author and finisher of the faith. He, he started it, and he's going to complete it. He's wrote the end and the beginning. Looking to Christ in faith is now your relationship to the law. So look, I, I would just boil it down to that. You're like, well, just start with that. Okay, I didn't. So here, I'll say it again. How do you relate to the law? To, by Christ in faith. That's, that's the only relationship you have to the law. That's what place it has in your heart. Outside of Christ, you run away from the law because of what it reveals in you, in me. So that way I'm not just pointing at you guys, right? Outside of Christ, you run away from the law because of what it reveals in you. Outside of Christ, you are exposed to the righteous judgment and justice of the law. Outside of Christ, you are left to strive endlessly for a standard of law that you cannot attain. Outside of Christ, the law is the only revelation of God, and it is terrifying. But if you reverse all of those and say inside of Christ, those become so attainable by faith. Well, inside of Christ, you don't have to run away from the law because of what it reveals in you. It doesn't, it doesn't mean it's not true, but it means the condemnation isn't there. Inside of Christ, we're not exposed to the wrath and judgment of the law. Inside of Christ, we're not left to strive endlessly for a law we can't achieve. Inside of Christ, um, we have the perfect revelation of a law that we can attain because love God and love one another is uh, fulfilled in love. And that's done through the Spirit. For those who look to the law to give them confidence, it's, it's not good. You will never be happy. You will never find rest in those things. So, the conclusion is this. Our great concern about grace or law. Well, if I say it's grace, then somebody's going to say you're lawless and you're just going out there and you do whatever you want and saying it's okay. Well, if you're just going by the law, well, Paul says don't go by the law. And by the law, no one will be justified or, or saved or called righteous. So our great concern seems to be what do we do with the law or what do we do with grace? And the Bible answers that by saying, well, listen, if you've received grace, it's not what do you do with it, but what has it done in you? It's not what can you do with grace and what can you do with the law? 
The question is, what has grace done in you? And the answer to that is really solidified by making sure the foundation is right. That, that one degree that causes you to hit the wrong or never get to the, the destination you're after is not fixed by course correcting somewhere in the middle. It's fixed by laying the foundation and solidifying the foundation and not missing what the foundation is. So the gospel is the declaration of what God has done already. It is good news because it's done. It's not something that's left to do. Our problem is that we treat it as, as it doesn't end with a period. It ends with an ellipsis. The ellipsis, the three dots. There's more to come. It's, yeah, grace through faith. Period. I'll leave the pause long enough just so you're not, so you're sure nothing else is coming. If you treat it with an ellipsis, you're back to the same problem. There's more, it's grace plus this other thing. You got, don't you know that? And that's the problem. The foundation is the gospel and it's understanding what grace. It is not grace plus. The inclination to look other places is what destroys the actual work of grace in our lives. Grace is sufficient. It is enough. And the spirit, you, guys, can you trust God to do what he said he's going to do? He says the spirit will cause you to walk in my ways by faith. That doesn't mean you'll do it perfectly. If God says that's enough, you don't have to add a law on top of that. That terrifies us. I know it does because we're like, but, but the law, right? Titus 2 and following, uh, starting in 11. I'll just read this for our conclusion. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all period. For, excuse me, for, yeah, for all, period. Uh, that's also applicable, right? Salvation for all people, okay? Grace has come, and it's appeared, and it brings salvation to all people. But what does that do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And he never says, so go to the law to find those things. He says, grace, salvation, and then out of that, out of grace, here's what happens. You'll be trained to renounce. The, the grace itself trains you to renounce ungodliness. Why? Because you always go back to the need for grace. And the need is rooted in the condemnation of the law. So that anytime you get outside of that, you have to return back to the foundation. That's why I said the foundation has to be set. And if the foundation is not set, everything else will go wrong. The foundation is grace is enough. And you go back to that, and it's necessary. Why? Because the law justly condemns me. And out of that, it trains me to renounce the things that are causing grace to be necessary in my life. Worldly passions. Well, that's presenting your flesh as a slave to unrighteousness. So that we'll live godly lives in the present age. Why? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of God, or the glory of, of the great God, and the Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. He, he redeemed us from lawlessness. And that redemption is already done. It's not something that has to be accomplished. That's part of the foundation. He's redeemed us from sinful lawlessness. Well, he's redeemed us to walk in his ways and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He doesn't say who are zealous to follow the rules. That means that we're, we're about pursuing Christ by faith and so we're full of good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So, the simplicity of all of this is rooted in 
the need for the foundation. And there's really not a whole lot of debate unless you want to try to confuse yourself. And there's no reason to do that. The assertion of last week, uh, if by grace, not by law, has, a, has an ending. But in grace, the law is fulfilled. So you don't have to worry about where, where do I shoehorn this thing in my life? In Christ, the law is there. If you will follow Christ, observe his way, do your best by the Spirit to walk after him, then that is what God wants of you and for you. To trust him, that, that's enough. Establish that that is true. Don't move beyond it. Don't look around it. Don't apply philosophy to it. Don't logic your way through it. That's the, that's the concrete ground floor, keeps everything in order thing. Faith. Trust Christ. Follow him. Keep your eyes on him. And it, grace will produce the things that they're meant to produce by God's good design. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father.